Hello, welcome to episode, I don't know, 12, 15, 19, I'm not entirely sure, uh, of Taking the Universe Around the World. I'm Robin Ince and these are my stories and my diaries from the 2022 Horizons Live Tour that I went on with Brian Cox around the USA and Canada and Ireland and uh, England, Scotland, Wales, Australia, Singapore and New Zealand. But so far I've only got as far as Edmonton and uh, this morning I wake up in Edmonton and and I see one of the finest performances I've actually arrived uh, a couple of days earlier than everyone else so I've just got it uh, uh, the kind of the, the world to myself I'm in that quite what I enjoy really quite often is is being quite solitary in a place like Edmonton or, or any of those cities I can just go wandering around I don't have to think about my obligations to anyone else I just have to think about my obligations to make sure that I visit some of the bookshops some of the art galleries some of the museums and probably end up with a reasonably arcane conversation over a pulp paperback that I'm buying for five dollars somewhere but this morning started with uh, undoubtedly I think the the best performance that I've seen during the whole tour and the prize for that best performance so far goes to the waitress who genuinely seemed interested in the man explaining to her how the expense account system has changed in his company over the last five years uh it's it, it was remarkable because she really did seem absolutely fascinated and um and i think he th- it's one of those interesting things when you hear a conversation like that because he had tr- tremendous uh, en- energy and vibrancy and belief in in what he was saying but i can't help believe i'm sure we've all had those moments where you suddenly think I better make some conversation and then about two sentences in you think no one needs to know this we could have just had silence why can't we have silence oh but it's too late now I'm two sentences in and then five minutes in you think oh my god am I still except you see so previously of course you would merely have to separate any wine purchases uh with the purchases of starters but now that anyway she she really <laughs> did it a, a brilliant performance and in some ways i think so did he but i, I i'm one of those people I, I don't really need to be talked to by people who wait tables i'm I'm very happy to to chat to people i don't mean that as, as in a rude thing but I don't, I don't feel that i need the extra service of of someone taking an interest in me because in north america it, it takes really 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 shit service for me to tip under 20 percent so I, I do understand but oh what are you doing here and that kind of, and sometimes i think people it is it's just th- them cheering up the day but i think you know don't answer too lengthily and also more often than not of course my internal monologue very quickly goes why on earth did i mention that particular piece of uh, extremely strange and possibly offensive art that i saw when i was once traveling through montreal now i will be judged so that's another reason that I generally try and keep my cards close to my chest because uh, my hypervigilant critic will often just pop in there. Now, anyway, everyone that I've met in Edmonton so far has been utterly delightful, though I have unfortunately startled a young cleaner twice in the last 24 hours. The first time I just popped in to pick up a book as she was refilling the coffee tray and that was like a proper jump scare kind of thing that, that the uh, producer and sometime director William Castle was aiming for in his exploitation thriller 
Godzilla the Tingler, which I'm sure you all know very well. That was the uh, uh, the movie with uh, Vincent Price, where which I've never actually seen, where there was um, a, a special... Some of the seats in the cinemas had a little electric shock mechanism placed in them because the idea was that people who couldn't actually scream... I think I'm right in saying this. Uh, some form of kind of mutant weevil or whatever started to develop in the base of their spine and uh, would eat away them. So it was actually the fear reaction would minimise them. Um, I think that's it. Or maybe they fed off the fear. But anyway, William Castle put a bunch of uh, little electric shocks in the chairs. And so certain people in the cinema at certain moments of fear would actually feel something at the base of the spine and presume they had a, a mutant weevil growing up their spine. That's It was so much simpler in the old days, entertainment and I'm sure you know about The House on Haunted Hill another film with Vincent Price where uh, they rigged up a skeleton I think it was a cardboard skeleton or similar that would sometimes suddenly just fall out of the screen and and swing down over people he was quite a showman You, if you've ever seen the film Matinee with John Goodman that is kind of partly based on William Castle anyway this morning it wasn't as big a jump scare it wasn't a William Castle jump scare I just presumed that I'd left my door open foolishly because I'm quite forgetful and I walked in as she was tucking in a sheet and I now think that I'm about one jump away from a reputation or or indeed just the fact that oh why is it that every time I'm cleaning suddenly he pops in so now I'm just going to put the do not disturb sign there that's just the safest thing to do and to be honest I can make my own bed yeah I know it's an idle boast but I can I'm one of those people also who doesn't really like leaving the hotel room messy because it seems rude normally I have actually made my bed and I normally clean the cups and I do all those things so I think well I'd have to do that at home so why do I suddenly come here and but I, I know other people are it's like the turndown service I've never really understood a turndown service I know that's in, in swanky hotels there's this thing where someone comes in and turns down the sheet and if there's no chocolate involved in that transaction I see no reason that I'm not able to turn down a sheet and sometimes a blanket as well i don't normally stay in those kind of hotels by the way we do stay in slightly fancier hotels when i go around with brian but generally i'm still pretty much a premiere in person anyway last night i popped down to the gym because uh, even though steph who is uh, so amazing on the tour as a trainer and uh, helping brian with a lot of his uh, sartorial decisions etc isn't there and she's normally one that, that pushes us towards the gym i don't want to return to a total pale flabbiness in the interim before she returns on tour but unfortunately there was another man there and he gave me that look of um <laughs> all this used to be mine what are you doing in the gym this is all mine anyway i'm deliberately going to sweat even more on the barbells and the like and leave everything clammy so he there was a kind of i mean i was reading quite a lot into that one look but he did like he was, he looked like he was deliberately going to kind of clamify many of the objects around him so uh that distinctly unfriendly look meant that i just found a discreet corner and uh wobbled under some untainted weights for a short time leaving him to pace about like a kind of mangy lion with squeaky sneaker paws i, I wasn't taken by him to be honest i woke up at midnight which is not surprising it's been this is going over to the west coast of canada from uh southeast england that's quite a big time change then i woke up at 2 a.m 4 a.m and eventually 7 30 a.m but i've become an increasingly tenacious sleeper and uh, i will not give up so just when the sandman thought he could leave but i am i've become an increasingly tenacious sleeper just when the sandman thought he could leave me i would turn up and need him again
strange dreams but i've had a lot more strange dreams perhaps because uh i annoyed the sandman so much he's been making stranger dreams in this one i was overworked and in a shakespeare play and uh, i hadn't agreed to do the shakespeare play and no one had shown me the text beforehand and i'd lost my shoes and i'd missed my train and my laptop lead dropped into a drain flooded with kind of oozing and festering food and i kept trying to explain that i didn't have time to do this shakespeare play and then someone tried to pull out my tooth so um busy busy dream i've also i've been wondering whether sertraline in some ways has played its part in uh, busying up my dreams and also meaning that they seem to uh, stick stick in my skull for a little bit longer so i've got better dream recall at breakfast i reread bridget brophy's introduction to by grand central station i sat down and wept and i know i've talked about this book so many times you will have heard me but if you have not read elizabeth smart by grand central station i sat down and wept you really should I always like to try and learn something before the day's digestion begins. The the em- empty stomach, I think, might also mean that without any form of lining, these ideas may stay with me. And uh, I realised that I still didn't really know what the word bathos meant. And it's, it's that kind of, you know, bath, bathos and uh, pathetic, uh, like peripatetic words that, you know, would be easily tripping off the tongue of anyone who writes for the London Review of Book, but uh, not me. So, uh, so, so that I could dare to use it in a sentence, I did look it up. And it appears that it is an anticlimax caused by a sudden change in mood. So keep an eye out for me now, crowbarring it into all future diaries, stand-up shows and books that I write. Brophy's Forward is wonderful and she writes that Smart shows that you can be a middle-class housewife and a solde at the same time. Is it Tristan and a solde? Anyway, look, I'll probably mispronounce that as well. There is no way I'm working for uh, the London Review of Books. That's why I like sometimes writing rather than performing because you can't mispronounce the words. Uh, you can just check how they're spelt. Brophy says that she hears the novel as both a rhapsody and a lament, writing about the metamorphic indetermination of the sexes in both Elizabeth Smart and also in John Genet. And it reminded me that I'd still not read two pieces sent to me by a biologist after last week's fracas over my post about the danger of dehumanising people with stand-up. On that occasion, particularly about trans people. I really wasn't, by the way, expecting quite such a maniacal reaction as I got, uh, but I probably mentioned that already in uh, a previous podcast, so I won't keep going on about it. Um, but yeah, it seems that uh, as, as long as it's the right people to dehumanise, it's absolutely fine, however dehumanised they might be already. Uh, I refer you to the opening of James Acaster's Cold Lasagna for more. And uh, this biologist, by the way, she sent me to the work of Dr. Anne Fausto Sterling, uh, amongst others. And so I started reading some of that. Uh, Dr. Anne Fausto Sterling uh, writes, There is a continuity between masculinity and femininity. In 1993, I published an article titled The Five Sexes that unleashed a firestorm of debate about sex and gender with a particular focus on the intersex experience. I asserted that the two-sex system embedded in our society is not adequate to encompass the full spectrum of human sexuality. I had intended to be provocative, but nevertheless was surprised by the magnitude of the controversy unleashed. Today is my last breakfast alone for this month. I'm so much better at solitary than Brian. Brian is only just over the border anyway in the USA where he's been taking a bit of a holiday. 
Brian's not as good at being solitary as I am. In fact, he's not very good at it at all. He does not have the same contentment I have to eat alone, watch movies alone, sit alone in a bandstand while people pass by and say, who's that weirdo sat alone in a bandstand? We're used to each other's company enough that even when it is three of us, we can just sit comfortably in silence or Brian can explain why there's matter in the universe over the scrambled egg. In my hotel room, my fridge is making a weird noise, so I decide to use the television to hush it, by which I don't mean pick up the television and smash it into the fridge, I just mean to turn up the television. And uh, I don't often now, the words I used to always turn on the TV when I was travelling around the world, just to get some kind of sense of, of of the culture that you're in, or at least the televisual culture that you're in. But, but now, in fact, there seems to be such minor differences. So anyway, I turn on, and the first thing I see is the price is right, but that is just too ecstatic. That's worse than the noise of the fridge. So I skip around and eventually find myself watching a ceremony about the First Nation compensation deal. Mark Miller, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, initially speaks in Sixisa Blackfoot. He is humble and calmly passionate and I think of John Redwood's dismal mouth as he attempted to join in the Welsh National Anthem while Secretary of State for Wales. It's comforting to see that sometimes politics and dignity can still occur in public. Ure Crowfoot, chief of the Siksika Nation, then speaks, seemingly without notes, about the societal racism that led to the idea of killing the Indian in the child. He speaks hopefully, and also of reconciliation, and the saying that reconciliation is not the needed word. Reconciliation can't completely heal what has come before. It is not about reconciliation, he says. It's about moving forwards. Sadly, just after he says that, I notice that Carl Rittenhouse is trending in social media. It seems the Depp Heard trial has given him vim and vigour, and as someone who killed two people and got away with it and then made money off the back of those deaths with a new media profile, this really is beyond the satire of anyone that I can think of, but there we are. Sometimes you have to go onto a love island, sometimes you just have to shoot people in the street. These are just the different methods of becoming famous. Anyway, he feels that he has been hard done by, which, of course, you know, he he's he's the one who lived. Uh, he's the one who, who took a gun to two people. But he's, he also feels that he's the one who's really been defamed. This, to me, sums up a certain form of, uh, in particular, I suppose, in North America, the populist right. You can kill two people and still think that the real victim is not the victims, but you. I decide it would be best to go and look at some orchids rather than roll around this festering swill. So I go to the Muttart Conservatory. Walking across the bridge, the footpath is under the main body of it, and the cement above is decorated with images of the wild and the colourful, and a heart that appears to also be a strawberry. Dead or alive. I enjoy a biome, and having made a documentary about silent running not so long ago, I feel Bruce Dern is guiding me. I see a particularly exuberant tree that reminds me of a gorgon's head, although I've been educated by Natalie Haynes' Pandora's Jar to know that Medusa's history is not as I saw it in Clash of the Titans, and also since then, obviously, from Stoneblind. Looking at the jojoba, I can only hear Billy Connolly luxuriating in the word during his shampoo routine in his masterpiece album, 
Wreck on Tour. If you've never heard Wreck on Tour, it was not one that was ever filmed. I would listen to it as a teenager over and over and over again. And the way that he would say, ho-ho-ba, ho-ho-ba. Anyway, magnificent. Also, the noise that he would make uh, when remembering standing in woolen swimming trunks and the cold of the North Sea making contact with his testicles is one of the greatest noises that has ever been made by any performer on stage. I also see a plant called String Theory next to Heavenly Bamboo. I wish Brian was there to see it. It's Blue Star Amontia, and it's good to see it last something tangible and provable in the world of string theory. In the tropical house, there is a memory bench for someone who lived to be 102 years old and someone who didn't make it to five months old. I walk along the river and decide I will attempt Brian's rejuvenating trick of an afternoon nap, but my head keeps talking, so I give up and go to buy some emergency Cheetos just in case I get hungry in the future. I decide that I should perhaps drop in at the Wee Book Inn. I've been debating buying the film tie-in copy of Logan's Run, a snip at $5, and it does include photographs from the film, such as scenes of widespread panic erupting as the life clock explodes, and the hallucinogenic vapour of the love shop, where sensual delight knows no bounds. And Jenny Agatha and Michael York holding hands while in the sensual delight area. I don't need another copy of William Burroughs' The Soft Machine, but this is Grove Press's first paperback edition and includes an advert that asks me if I have what it takes to join the underground. I need to be adult, literate and adventurous. I leave Nova Express and the Wild Boys in the carousel, but they may be gone tomorrow. I enjoy the extra story inside the soft machine, which is the ink stamp of the Pride Centre of Edmonton. It still exists 50 years on, though it has moved streets. The Pride Centre of Edmonton provides a non-judgmental, welcoming space where people of all attractions, identities and expressions can be themselves, find support, meet new people and be part of a caring community. I also buy Tanith Lee's Don't Bite the Sun. The cover artwork has a woman with a leopard skin bikini and the face of Danny LaRue. It's hanged to be wild and sexy and reckless and teenage. My final purchase is The Weekend Witch. Every Woman's Guide to Enchanting Her Man. It combines sorcery and psychology, and I keep buying books like these because one day, just one day, I might reinvigorate and reincarnate my old club night, the book club. When? I don't know, but I always keep it in my mind. They, good days. Now, the next day in Edmonton, the day that Brian is returning, it turns out it's not a good day. In fact, it's a bit of a disappointment. In fact, because I've travelled a very, very long distance, and all to play some of my favourite places, including Vancouver and Seattle, it's a bit of a disappointment to stick a bud up my nose and put it into some kind of solvent and then basically find out that there are the two stripes of dreadful lurgy. I double check. I stick a bud up my nose and down the back of my throat again. I rinse it around in the solvent and it's double stripe again. And it appears that finally, after just over two years, I have succumbed to COVID. Now, I have no idea where I got it from. I tested before I left. I did everything before I left and I was entirely clean and well and I did it on the day that I arrived. But somewhere along the line, I appear to have picked up COVID. And even though I feel absolutely fine, I mean, I feel a little bit 
but that's a bit it's only slightly bleh, whereas i know a lot of people have felt really bleh, bleh, uh so um so i'm doing fine it's only a bit bleh. nevertheless i have decided that obviously i have to go into isolation because of the crew because of the audience because brian because of the hotel staff because of everyone so i can't deny that having got nearly eight thousand kilometers and then not being able to travel the final four kilometers to do tonight's show does give me a touch of melancholy and i'm just lucky that i'm i'm reasonably well once my temperature etc is back to normal and uh, i go back to one line i hope to be moving on but i literally now have no idea when i'm going to be moving on so uh, i get in contact with everyone who runs the show and uh, we double check and treble check our tour manager lee has uh, very kindly made sure that i have a supply of bananas and pretzels jack and the rest of the crew have made sure that i have the tech that means i can be beamed in virtually from my hotel room what i've done with my hotel room is i've shifted the hotel furniture around and I've kind of made a set, really. Uh, it's you know, it's very much these are my Ed Wood days. I've worked out some cinematography. I've moved some lights around, and uh, now I will still appear in the show. I will still have moments of uh, mocking Brian and moments of frivolity and light silliness to place in between the equations. But uh, it will all come from me being beamed from my hotel room. And when I'm moving the lights around to try and get the right kind of i mean what, what's, what's kind of fun about it is that there are certain things that i can do by having a bed there uh and my pajamas that i would not be able to do as easily if i was actually just live on stage so i keep looking for things that at least i can create that wouldn't happen if i was actually on stage to create some kind of uh, so it's not just creating a kind of you know ersatz version of what i should be doing but when I'm moving the lights around and just trying to get the right angle, it reminded me of a story of uh, Jack Cardiff, the great cinematographer Jack Cardiff, who worked with Powell and Pressburger, then went on to to be a director of kind of less impressive films. They're very, very interesting man. If you've never seen the movie all about him, Cameraman, you should. I saw it at the BFI initially uh, with my dad um, and Martin Scorsese, but my, Martin Scorsese didn't sit with, with us. And my dad sat with me and Martin Scorsese, he stood on stage, said some things about Jack Cardiff, I did Sanjeev, Basker as well who'd worked with him. Jack Cardiff one of the things that was great I mean he just incredible a wonderful passionate speaker to listen to and he continued to go around till very close to the end of his life doing talks and being interviewed on stage and one of the stories that I think is probably from his book I can't remember for certain if it's from his uh, autobiography but he talks about when he once lit Ava Gardner and uh, this wasn't for a film Ava Gardner had had a stroke and she'd agreed to be interviewed by a journalist in her house but she asked Jack Cardiff to come around and carefully work out the lighting of the room she wasn't being filmed she was she was just being interviewed for a newspaper but what Jack Cardiff did was very carefully moved around the table lamps and all the lamps that she had so it looked still like a normal room but so it would create the right light and the right shadow so that the journalist would be none the wiser about Ava Gardner having had a stroke I find that just it's a beautiful and rather sad story now as someone who doesn't like sitting on their arse this was a but static day. I started it by uh, reading the copy of Soft Machine that I picked up from the Wee Book Inn. But there, there is a, a, a lot of rectal mucus in the start of the Soft Machine. And uh, sometimes when you're not top of the game, it's not entirely the right thing to immediately be reading about. Oh, I feel just a little bit poorly. I should read a lot about rectal mucus. So I didn't necessarily feel the same spell that I have felt before with William Burroughs. Though, of course, now I started to worry about the William 
same burrows I'd left behind and whether it would still be there when I only had one stripe again and so many things. When we actually do the show, the crowds in Edmonton sound amazing. I love playing Canada. It makes it even more, well, that sense of bitterness to miss tonight's gig. I I still managed to make three appearances on stage and I listened to the whole thing. And I could sense that Brian was really enjoying it. And uh, I think he was really enjoying the fact as well that he knew he had a great control over when I walked on stage and when I didn't. And uh, so he was able to uh, expand with his physics even more so. This now feels like this could be the beginning of a Tom Hanks movie somewhere between Castaway and The Terminal. I've already asked Brian to buy me a basketball so I can have it as my friend when the rest of the science circus moves on to another town. Even though, as I mentioned before, I don't mind being solitary or being alone, as Louis Bunuel said something equivalent to that, that solitude was perfect just as long as you knew that you had someone to talk with about it afterwards. That's the thing that when suddenly you realise you're the only person in the town and or the city and everyone else has moved on and now you are just back to being a stranger, that there is just a, a little... That That feeling of isolation just has a little extra hint of anxiety. Anyway, they haven't gone yet, and I end the night catching the end of a documentary on Joseph Papp, a theatre impresario determined to bring free Shakespeare plays to New York, and uh, then I hear an advert that tells us, eggs for lunch isn't weird. You're weird for thinking it's weird. After that, I'm sickened to see that Peter Popoff a rather nasty charlatan whose cruelty was debunked by James Randi on The Tonight Show, is still selling his miracle water. He used to pretend that he was able to communicate with, as far as I can see, God and the dead and see inside your soul. But it was all down to a simple trick of just having a little earpiece and someone broadcasting to him. And what is perhaps tragic about when it was revealed that he was definitely a charlatan and not really communicating with ideas from the other side, then all that happened was people moved on to another charlatan preacher meanwhile at this time dr oz is a republican candidate i'm glad to say that uh, actually uh, since this diary was written that uh, things uh, he, he didn't manage to uh, to get his place in washington but i'm sure he'll try again and it just does feel that when you see things like this the medicine wagons are still rolling into town they will never end anyway finally after chopping through a few things i settle on for a few dollars more probably my favorite of the serge leone clint eastwood movies Watching it, I remember how Italian westerns are robbed of so much of their art and dignity by the dubbing. Ha 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 ha, yes, the dubbing. Watching the excellent box sets released by Arrow with subtitles of some of the old spaghetti westerns, the films are <laughs> immediately elevated. I actually made a documentary with Stuart Lee about lesser-known spaghetti westerns, but sadly, I fear it may never see the light of day. Perhaps by this point it has. By the way, one of the things I think we talked about in that documentary, which is something I'd not known, there's also a very good book by Christopher Frayling about spaghetti westerns, but the fact that the reason there's <laughs> so much laughing in so many of those films is that quite often it was presumed that the dialogue actually was a lot worse than people had remembered. And uh, so when the mouths were opening and closing, it was decided just make the sound of a laugh rather than this poor selection of uh, verbs and nouns. I believe that to be true, but you may check if it is apocryphal. Today is the day that the circus leaves town and leaves me behind. I hate being ill, especially when I'm not really ill. I'm just a bit meh. So, uh, anyway, who who likes being ill? Who says, oh, God, tell me what, I'm so relieved to have this chest infection. Anyway... Um, I feel also like a kind of a cheat and a lazy bastard sitting about because I don't feel that unwell. 
I also feel like a bit of a cheat and a lazy bastard because I don't actually feel that ill. It's just because the two stripes are there. And uh, I think, in fact, there have only been two occasions in 30 years where I've been so ill that I've had to cancel gigs. And that was so. And even then, once I've cancelled it, even when I'm there sitting on the toilet, I'm still thinking, oh, I think I could have probably still done the gig. I've at times been introduced walked straight out on stage from the toilet, told the compare I will do exactly the time I was booked for, and then the moment that is over, I will walk straight back into the toilet. I think that's only happened once, but I just remember the suspense as I could just hear the final... I think, right, right, that's his final word of introduction, and flies up and in. And uh, then just really concentrating on every single word and knowing that I couldn't improvise that much because improvisation requires your mind going into other places. And my mind had to stay exactly where it was to keep everything controlled. Ridiculous. Anyway, I'm glad that Brian and I are still able to do some bits of the show together, even though now there is an enormous distance to us, or at least a distance of quite a few hundred miles it's an odd thing to be sat alone in a hotel room but also be in front of two and a half thousand people i've dressed the kettle and the trouser press up with hastily made bonnets and science t-shirts so i can imagine an audience who knows maybe the trouser press will eventually reach a point of sentience and start heckling brian was slightly worried that i was wearing a t-shirt with his stepford physicist face on while sat in bed so i changed it to my leonard cohen t-shirt instead a man who, unlike Brian, had the dignity to age like the rest of us. I think today may generally be a Leonard Cohen day. I'm also keen to watch one of my favourite Canadian films, Atomigoyan's Exotica. It's a film that is both a significant tragedy and also has a beauty in it. A beauty in the sadness, even despite the weight of the loss that it deals with. This also reminds me that I very much want to read Sarah Polly's memoir, Run Towards the Danger, Confrontations with a Body of Memory. She's an artist of considerable intelligence and compassion, and I think her book will be the first one I buy when I'm released from the hotel room. I'm particularly interested in reading her chapter on the dangers of allowing artists to run riot over other people because they are deemed to be a mad genius or that is the cost of being such a great artist, a cost that, of course, other people have to pay. This chapter is inspired by her childhood experience as an eight-year-old in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Years after, when she saw that director Terry Gilliam was about to cast another child actor, She contacted him to explain the trauma she had felt, and she feels that he predominantly brushed this aside. According to The Guardian, it was only when fellow actor Eric Idle spoke out in her defence that her voice was finally heard. She was right. She was in danger. Many times, Eric said. Spending most of the day in isolation, I record podcasts, reading and writing. As I have a day in isolation, I just record podcasts and I read and I write. It will be strange to think of the rest of the team moving on to another city. Outside, I hear a wedding. On the patio, four floors below my hotel window, two men are getting married, surrounded by applauding loved ones. It's good to be reminded of progress, while remembering there are plenty of people who would happily vote for regression too. I wonder if either of these men used to go to the Edmonton Pride Centre. If the free speech hucksters actually believed in free speech then we would have a lot more from them about the new laws in Florida that echo the UK's Section 28. Sadly, the likes of Joe Rogan have fallen for the Fox News angle, and people seem to believe that kindergarten children are being taught about poppers and fisting, as opposed to the possibility that a child being told that being gay is normal 
may actually be useful and productive and lead to a happier society where people didn't obsess about consensual sexual activity that was not to their liking. Looking down Neil Gaiman's feed, I see a story about the Lafayette Public Library System. Its director has decided there will no longer be displays focusing on Women's History Month or Pride Month as he wants to take the politics out of their displays. It seems that anything that people are uncomfortable with, they can call political and shut it down. For many people, their very existence is political and, for many, a political problem. This director of libraries seems to be unaware that libraries lead you to books books that you didn't know you wanted to read and ideas you'd never played with before and it puts you into shoes you never knew you could walk in. I spent some of the afternoon, definitely too much of the afternoon actually, feeling pretty shitty about letting people down on the Horizons tour by picking up a virus. I keep thinking about the extra expense and the extra bother as if I had some control over the situation. I blame dramatic irony. Only a few days ago, I was talking about how I would keep my face mark as an accessory, whatever the world situation, as I hadn't had so much as a cold in the last two years. Reminder, keep your dumb mouth shut. I kept my mask on most of the time, but somewhere I could still pick it up. When not in my hair shirt, I spend the rest of the afternoon reading Marion Milner's Eternity's Sunrise, a way of keeping a diary, and Veronica O'Kane's The Rag and Bone Shop. So that's two therapists to keep me company. The title for Veronica's collection comes from one of W.B. Yeats's final poems, The Circus Animal's Desertion. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. My most recent Big Issue column has now moved from last week's Tangible magazine to the website. When I see it tweeted, I worry all over again. It's about a few things, among them thoughts on ADHD. I've never been officially diagnosed, but spent a lengthy amount of time with people who know their onions and their mental health. When they talked me through it all, it made utter sense, and in a way that I'd never felt in my previous 50-plus years, I felt an overwhelming sense of both relief and understanding about what had been going on in the life of my mind for so long. But the critical voice butts in with, well, you're just saying that to show off, and you probably haven't anyway, and all those things, it's just normal. What makes you think you're so special? And all of the rest. I get a message on Twitter which reminds me why I love Canada. Edmonton's vivid print was at the show last night and knowing I was now left alone and isolated they gathered together a bag of goodies from the stores around them including Strathcona Spirits, the Wee Book Inn, Sugar and Spice, the Situation Beer Company and some prints from Vivid too. It's a splendid act of kindness. The Wee Book Inn have sent Leonard Cohen's Book of Longing. The previous reader highlighted only one phrase in this book of 230 pages for less than a second our lives will collide. There's also a small Polaroid, I presume, that reader's bookmark. It is a photograph of someone's yellow-socked feet perched on a dashboard, a cloudy sky ahead above the road. I shift the furniture around my hotel room, create a laptop table from books and create my broadcasting corner so I can communicate with Brian on stage in Calgary. Tonight, the audience questions include, statistically, what are the chances that we are not alone in this universe? With AI advancing at the rate that it's going, could there be a point where a super-intelligence far smarter than humans could understand all of physics, space-time, and potentially understand higher dimensions? And, my daughter is curious, what's Dr Cox's favourite way to enjoy potatoes? Yes, the answer was chips. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. 